Cool. Another episode of Star Minds' podcast here. Dan and Earl back again. It is International Women's Day. So uh, shout out to all the amazing women out there, you know, kicking butt and, you know, paving the way for the future. And today's episode happens to be a really special one. Today we have Senator Mendoza, who is a general partner at Mendoza Ventures. Uh, just taking a quick glance at the fund, they're really interesting. They fund cybersecurity, AI, and uh, fintech, to my knowledge. And they have a couple of exits that that uh, well, I'm sure we'll get into today and, you know, their success and all that. Um, and what makes this fund super special is that uh, they, you know, have an emphasis on changing the demographics of, you know, how, I guess, maybe the public perceives females in the entrepreneurship space and getting them more funding and, you know, and an emphasis on inclusion and diversity. So that's stuff we all stand behind. And uh, Senator, happy to have you here. Welcome from Boston and can't wait to dive in. Thank you guys. I'm excited to be here. Um, for sure. Can you, I guess, just tell us a little bit about yourself as, as a person and we'd just love to hear from you and know you that way. <laughs> yeah, I love coffee. Um, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm a co-founder and general partner at Mendoza Ventures. So like you said, we're a Boston-based AI, FinTech and cybersecurity firm. 100% of our general partnership team is minority or female, um, which is a little bit different flavor of VC. Um, and I started this firm in 2016 with my co-founder and partner, and we're now kicking off our fund three. So it's been- Wow, two funds under the belt. No way. Yeah, it's been an exciting ride. Fund one was a proof of concept fund um, where we took our money and some friends' money and tried out a thesis of- creating greater alignment between a startup and the people that fund them. And that worked. So then we set out to raise $10 million <laughs> for fund two. Yeah, I know. <laughs> knock on wood, it's, it's still working. Um, we set out to raise $10 million for fund two that we oversubscribed to 13 million. And that fund's now closed. And now we're just starting to kick off fund three. Well, so I just had to notice that Mendoza Ventures is kind of your guys' last name too at the same time, right? Yeah, it is. We're married GPs. Okay. So it's no, our no. fourth business together. <laughs> wow, that's insane. That's incredible. That's awesome. Um, you know, with, with that being said, uh, you know, wh- wh- where'd you guys get this, you know, inspiration to make a fund in this style, you know, for um, Latinos as well as, you know, minorities who, and, and women as well, uh, who uh, kind of are missing from, you know, the, the or like kind of are missing from the, you know, the spotlight or just in general from, you know, the conversation as, as people say. Yeah. Um, we had two startups in the Boston area that we raised for. And when it started getting time to exit, you know, the board looked at my partner and said, go find something else to do. And he did. And so, <laughs> <laughs> um, I ended up COOing those two startups and bridging my way from hospitality design and enterprise sales into tech that way. And so when we set out to raise the fund, there were a couple of things that we really wanted to address about the capital stack. The first was that when we received a check from a VC, it's usually a really passive experience. They write a lot of checks to spread out their risk and you're accountable to your venture capitalist at the board meeting for profits and things like that. But we were first time founders. And so we made all the mistakes that first time founders make. And so to the point that a couple of years ago, someone came up to us and said, you know, I've been following your career. I love what you've built. I invested in your startup. And this was a really great experienced technologist. I said, great. 
where were you? <laughs> I really, I really needed you. <laughs> I hired, you know, we hired the wrong developers, all that kind of stuff that happens when you're learning. What, what so were we, uh, your first two uh, startups or companies? If you don't, we can uh, hear about that. Marlin Mobile and then Actian. Um, uh-huh. And it was a base hit exit. And so when we got that check back, we said we can either size up our apartment in Boston or we can set out to fix the broken system of venture capital and we still live in a two-bedroom apartment <laughs> wow no way yeah no shout out to all the you know vcs who who live humbly and i mean there's a big misconception right like with with you know being a venture capitalist uh, i was one for a little bit and earl went to stanford and kind of was one too um yep there's like you know it's it's sometimes like you know when your founder talking to a vc it's you feel like they're at such a different level or you know they're like an elitist right like kind of with the capitalist word kind of comes up with uh, somebody who's just in charge. And I guess like for you, like how do you kind of balance that perception of being a venture capitalist with, you know, who you are intrinsically that might not fit the traditional like thoughts of someone who um, is perceiving VC like for the first time? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thanks. Yeah, Um, (laughs) hope it made sense. Hope it made sense. (laughs) No, it did. It it made perfect sense. I would say that... um, as a minority and female founded fund, we've learned a long time ago that if people are going to bring strong opinions to a meeting that they haven't researched, there's not a lot that we can do about that. And so we're there to meet founders and be transparent about our story at every turn. Um, but there's so much about that perception of a power dynamic in a funding meeting, especially for early entrepreneurs that needs to be unpacked. Um, and a lot of what we spend time doing with our portfolio companies is breaking down that traditional funder founder relationship and saying, no, you can call me when the code breaks because I have, you know, a network that's broader than yours of people that may know how to fix it (laughs) and not so much, um, not so much, look, it's okay. Or try and fix it by the next board meeting. Wow. Yeah, I guess uh, good, good question because you know one thing that really surprised me when I looked at the fund profile is you focus on pre-seed, and you know um, obviously sometimes people start funds and they want to do later stage because there's less risk. So why start in this stage when the risk is so high? Uh, you know, with with entrepreneurs you might met with maybe they're still first time founders. Like, why did you fall in love with this stage to actually create more funds, not just one now two now three funds focusing on this stage um it was it was a a bit of a double-edged sword i mean for one necessity breeds ability and we started with our own money so our first check into our first startup was ten thousand dollars and then you're looking right at the pre-seed which was a bigger check in 2016 than it is today (laughs) but uh, um and we realized that um from there we could really bring in the expertise of our network to help them. And so as we went to prove that concept, we started with what we had and that's what we could do at that time. And then we followed on with more money and grew from there. But I think if there's one thing for your audience to learn, it's if you can save up $10,000, you can change the world. And the Mm. nice thing is that even since then, so much has become so accessible. There's all these great investments on Republic and all these other platforms now that even if you can save up $200, you can change the world, which is awesome. And so from a portfolio construction, like we do a lot of diligence on our startups before we invest. So in our pre-seed fund, there's only 12 to 15 portfolio companies in that fund. 
we're not doing a typical pre-seed investment of 100 portfolio companies because we want to be able to spend the time with the founders. So even at that pre-seed stage, we're doing a month to three months of due diligence, depending on how well we already know the team, writing a full memo, and then bringing the full support of our firm behind that introductory check. And then what we've learned over time is that because that was our approach, we had this happy accident of diversity and inclusion because we were offering this support we could propel women and minority and immigrant founders further because they had a more involved VC earlier. A great example of that is um, we just led a round for a female funder and founder in Wabi that was followed by Cisco. And so that usually doesn't happen at the seed stage. But now that we've been doing this for a few years and our diligence is a little bit heavier, um, we have that reputation of being able to find the startups early. Nice. Uh, I'd had to ask you, uh, you know, since you, you know, just about the funds journey and, and raising the fund to begin with, like pitching the limited partners, um, you know, with, 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 with when you started that, like did, uh, how was that journey just like finding LPs since, uh, I mean, maybe there's people out there who want to raise a fund, but they're kind of doubting themselves because, you know, it sounds pretty difficult, right? And sure it is, but can you just talk to us about like what it was like, uh, you know, landing your first partner or limited partner and getting the fund uh, kind of off the ground? Yeah. Um, I think the advice that I would have for people looking to do the same is unabashedly use what you have. <laughs> like whatever you have, use it till the wheels fall off. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, think that's, that's I love that. that. We definitely do. <laughs> so um, I had worked in enterprise sales before and my background is in um, really large-scale hospitality construction. So I did Ritz-Carlton Fairmont renovations and transitioned over to enterprise sales from there. And construction is a scrappy industry. Like you just have to get out there and get it done to meet your numbers. And I, that's the background I came from. So when we decided to raise the fund, I opened up all of my LinkedIn tabs mm-hmm. and I closed everyone that looked like they were worth under maybe yeah. $3 million. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and uh and then just started telling everyone. And to I think like every founder that's raised, I kissed a lot of frogs. <laughs> <You know? laughs> there were a lot of people that took a lot of time that were not going to invest in something like this. But you, it's that pattern recognition. You start learning. And now the industry has advanced so far from when we did that. You know, Carta was not a tool uh-huh. that was available, mm. really. So we were trying to talk... Um, fund admins into taking a smaller fund like us on and so a lot of that industry was closed off to us and so it was really just hitting the ground calling everyone we knew as as unglamorous as that sounds asking everyone that we knew to bring in another friend and going from there and by the end of fund two we had deployed as we raised so we had track record at the end of fund two we had a really strong network at the end of fund two and when we hit 10 million dollars we dropped our minimum so that women and people of color could come in at whatever price point they could into the fund. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, yeah, I guess uh, some, some thoughts here is, you know, um, I think a number of, of uh, you know, VCs, that's, that's when at least partners, right? Like that's what they're scared of is the LP fundraising. Um, and, and especially like if you're maybe don't have, uh, you know, a network, you know, a LinkedIn, like, you know, how do you really get access to the folks that have money? High net worth individuals, pension fund. It seems like it's a uh, its own world that that's like a 
to be honest, maybe an old boys club, right, to get in. Like, how do you get into that so you can actually access really the capital so you can fund your fund, right? Because it seems it's, you, you might have to go to gatekeepers and, you know, is that really the way that people do it, right? So you do have to go through gatekeepers. That's part of it. You know, our anchor LP for Fund 3, we've been working with and keeping posted for two years. And so that's the type of timetable that you're looking at. Think of mm. how much you pour over a car before you spend money on a car. And you're asking people to give you millions of dollars. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> you know, like, um, it's going to take some time to build that relationship. I think really look at it's there's a lot of announcements sort of always happening, especially in the funding area where you see someone raised X million dollars in two weeks or whatever it is, really unpack those mm -hmm. stories, those media stories of what happened behind that story to set that person up to do that. Or was it really two weeks or were they in soft market for two years and then they announced and then they raised. So it looked like two weeks on the internet. So yeah, I would say ex exactly. don't listen to the noise. The average amount of time it takes to raise a fund is 18 to 36 months. So plan on that. And that's the NAIC average. Um, and that in our experience has been what it takes, no matter what the headline says. Well, one, one question I have into that, Sanford, is uh, I know you come from a like strong sales background and, and uh, you know, obviously like the past, uh, you know, a uh, couple of years with the fund, um, also seeing this from a investor standpoint where founders are putting a lot on the line to raise money. Um, I guess just with that, you know, kind of like with that whole idea, does uh, when you were raising the fund and, you know, everyone gets rejected from that, do you, what do you know, what do you think kept you going like with, with raising from, from <laughs> limited partners? I mean, is it the, the fact that this mission just means so much to you and could learn about like why it means so much and, or, uh, you know, cause I think it's an interesting thing to, to become a VC, like to, to want to raise money and then use that money since, I don't know, I don't think most people kind of perceive becoming a VC that way. It's more like, I'll just join this fund or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think there were a few things that were really, that really pushed me to do this. The first is that um, I worked and I had kids and that was not as easy as it should have been in 2012 and 2014. And it's a lot easier to influence change when you're holding half a million dollars or more under someone's nose than not. And so my ability to have positive impact as a woman on a board or as a woman who's on an investment committee with an equal voice is so much greater. Because when I look at a founder and say, what's your plan for this? <laughs> They're asking a girl for a check. They better have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah. Uh, do you have something? Earl, or? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, another question here is, um, you know, um, how do you, um, you know, think about, uh, I guess, you know, when you meet the founder, how do you know that they're ready to get investment, right? Especially at the pre-seed because, you know, there's a lot of people that want to be an entrepreneur, right? Um, a lot of people want to start a company, but, but like, how do you know that they're ready actually for investment versus, you know, just basically doing something on the side, right? Yeah, that's tricky. Um, it's, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. So track record is, of course, one of them. 
Um, and we have a wide swath of founders in our portfolio from first time founders to repeat founders. So really what we look for in those first meetings are product market and team equally set up for success to run this company. Because we've seen, it's not just the founder, it's the entire founding team that has to carry the weight of this company. And so one of the things that tells us about the founder specifically is, have they talked someone else into this other than their parents or grandma or somebody like that who might be a first customer, give them an idea? Um, Have they raised funding from somewhere else or have they gotten a product in market and tried it with somebody? Because the ability to win other people over to your cause, either financially or with effort, is a huge tell for later um, and their ability to be on the leadership team. And then you can't know in that first year, a seed stage founder is really different from managing a company of 300 people. And so what we do is we create a lot of transparency between the founders and the board and make sure that they, and not just them, but their entire founding team is getting the support that they need to scale. I think I just read the book on Marissa Mayer and the Yahoo but, and their CEO, their C-suite was a revolving door for five years because yeah. it takes it takes a lot of different skill sets at these different stages. So creating those conversations that can be transparent and accountable on both sides is really important to tracking it over time. And that's why we do the two to three months of diligence because time is the biggest tell. Did they do what they said that they were going to do? Did they celebrate the successes? Did they lead their team through the failures? And, you know, or are they more in love with like a Cinderella story of funding where they're going to have a great idea and get funded and it's going to be great after two to three months of working with someone you usually know? Wow. Yeah, no, I, I can I can picture that in my head. Um, one, th- one thing I just want to hear from you, Jennifer, is, uh, you know, entrepreneurship kind of took off on a different level when the pandemic or COVID kind of happened, right? Since people... You know, I don't know why, but it just grew. And, and you know, I, I don't know how much percentage of that was necessarily women or minorities, but do you have a different, what do you call that? Like a different vantage point and seeing that change grow? Because I know you guys advocate for that change. So just wanted to hear from you and see like what you've seen growth or in, seen develop in, in that sphere just since, you know, it, it's probably something you uniquely understand other than someone else. Yeah. We were raising a fund at the start. You know, we were still closing out fund two at the start of lockdown. So uh-huh. I would say now that the data is starting to come back, unequivocally, it's been worse for women and minorities <laughs> as a whole, the pandemic. Wow. And so, and all the financial hits that they've taken, I feel like will have a, a downstream effect on their financial ability to take the risk to start a company later. And so that's a big question I have. But then the really positive side of it is that now we talk about it. Now it's part of, we're talking about it. And this wouldn't probably have happened before the pandemic. Um, And we found this amazing Latinx community in tech that we wouldn't have had the transparency to before because it was more niche and it was more localized and it was more in person. So now Eduardo Rodriguez is a great example of this. He's a Latino who lives in Norway who just started connecting all these Latinos in tech all over the place. And now he has this great network. Um, there's um, VC Familia is a Slack channel that started out of it for deal flow and things like that. And so the foundations being laid 
for a community to come together nationally in a way that didn't happen before attack. And as my partner is Mexican American, and we went down to Miami over the summer to take some meetings, it was the first time, and I've known him since 2006, that I've seen him sit at a table with three other Latinos that were his peers in a meeting. That wouldn't have happened before the pandemic. And so I think to my earlier point, the ripple effect of that will be huge because our communities are getting more organized and more transparent and starting to work together better. And that's my hope for our learning. Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting. I remember like in 2018, I was reading Emily Chang's book, uh, Brotopia, and kind of like learning about that. I have to refresh my memory, but like learning about how come women are not, uh, you know, I, I guess like the scale is tipped towards men because, uh, I don't know, it just seems like, you know, um, the founders or CEOs, you, you think of a ma- male for some reason or something. But I think well, there was one a little percent, bit more. There, well, there's a really good reason for that. One percent of all GPs are female. What one percent? And so one percent of all GPs are female. And so if you're in an investment committee of five, you're not going to probably have more than one or two women on that investment committee. And so as you go up the capital stack, bias plays into each layer. And so it's, there's a, there's a glass ceiling there that we're working really hard on breaking. Um, And even within that, the women GPs tend to manage, have lower AUM than the men so far, but we'll change it. No. Yeah. (laughs) I I definitely have friends, women, friends who are, uh, in, in venture capital and also tend to be founders too. So I definitely think that there's development and, and growth and it, it remains to be seen, but like, yeah. you know, with your guys' mission, I just want to hear like, what is like the ideal or what is like, you know, not even related to your thing, but what is like an ideal perception you guys want to be able to see with regard to women and, and uh, minorities in the tech entrepreneurship space, like in 10 years or like, what is, what does a pie chart look like or what, what you know? <laughs> I mean, the pie chart should look like the census right? Or uh, if the census okay, were yeah, perfect. <laughs> if ever, do your census. Um, but, you know, we, when we founded the firm, there were two of us and we looked at each other and said, well, everyone here is a minority or a woman. How uh, do we create that up our capital stack and down our capital stack? And so how do we pull startups up into the LP base? And how do we find LPs that are willing to pull us up as well? And so every room we walk into, every board seat we take, every founder we interview, we bring to that, are we representing the community? You know, our first exit I told you about was two Latino founders and we have a puppy. I can show you guys here. This is is VC puppy. (laughs) He has an Instagram account. He's, he's, I think he's drinking in New York on Instagram right now. (laughs) Um, But that company was called Good Dog Labs and they had this puppy as their swag because a good dog is a good watchdog. And it was two Latino founders out of Austin and we had them acquired within five months and both of them invest in startups. So the puppy is our reminder to do that with every investment. That's our, that's our standard. That's how we started. So that's what we should be doing with each step. And that's what we'd like to be known for. I think when generational wealth in the United States looks like the population of the United States, that's when I can put my feet up. <laughs> wow. No, that's, yeah, I, guess. I love that. <laughs> So no, for maybe we may switch gears a little bit here. Like, tell us more about like you know when did you discover yourself being either an entrepreneur, investor? You know, did it come from college, from you know, sometime in grade school? Like, 
we're trying to always deduce in this podcast, like whether it's nature or nurture, is a training or you got it from life experience? Like, you know, how did you get, I guess, this knack for, you know, being involved with entrepreneurship? Yeah. Um, well, I graduated undergrad in 2004 and entrepreneurship was not encouraged then the way that it is now. You went to business school then to work at one of the big banks that was about to crash. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I think that probably has something to do, if I'm honest with myself, on encouraging me to go into mm. it. <laughs> um, but I've always found it as a place that I can have the culture that I need. You know, I have two kiddos. And so I built the culture that I needed to work in to have a job and be a parent. And it happened mm. to be a venture capital firm. Um, that's why I love it. And I love it because I get to come to work every day and we work with absolutely amazing founders who see that and who turn that into something in their own companies. And so that's what really got me stuck on it. When I was younger, I worked in theater and film, which are always very entrepreneurial. So I always managed my own consultancy because I was um, building sets in LA. Wow! Yeah, no way. I also read like your your the other partner of the fund is he's from LA, right? So we're born in. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he I grew have, up yeah. in LA and then came here for school, and now we're a bi-coastal family. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I went to the UC Riverside and had a bunch of minor. I mean, you know, LA Mexican friends. So that's that's awesome. Um, that's cool. Something I want to ask too is since you guys are like a you know a fund with a specific like kind of you want to back women and you know minorities. Does that mean they have to be, you know, they have to fit like a checklist before they can pitch to you? Or like, what is a, what is, no, they don't have to fit a checklist. We, we are profit driven. So the reason that we look for diverse teams as part of our investment committee is that the data is out. McKinsey released a study in 2020. There's been a hundred studies since then that diverse teams outperform. And so we just invest like it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if that's the case, which it is, why would you not invest in a diverse team? It's our fiduciary responsibility to find it more diverse teams. And so, and what I've seen is the reason for that, because my partner is Mexican American from LA and I am a Cape Cod, New Englander. And what I've seen in us and I've seen mirrored in the other teams is that if you're culturally flexible enough to work with people who are radically different from yourself, you have a better chance of succeeding in scaling a company because you have had to explain something differently, maybe hear something offensive, (laughs) you know, get over it, work with the team and do all those sorts of things. Um, And when we see the homogenous team, no matter what that homogeny is, you know, if it were an all female team from the same neighborhood, I'd worry about this the same way is can you really work with someone radically different from yourself and drive both of you in, in a direction together? I got to ask you this, like, you know, the tech industry kind of skews toward, you know, white male or like, I guess, uh, you know, it's balanced definitely, you know, if, if I've walked into the tech office many times and have seen lack of diversity, right? Do you think that, you know, this, this shift and wanting diversity is going to, also play out into not only startups but like also or how, how do you how have you seen it play out just since it's kind of what I wonder sometimes yeah part of the reason that I'm so passionate about venture capital 
is that if we bring diversity up the capital stack, you're right, you're right. It works both ways. You know, if you if you handed me a startup with a woman from Cape Cod as the CEO right now, I would probably be more likely to fund it or Latinos or something that sure, I know personally sure. that I'm comfortable with. I'm more likely to fund it. Um, so if we just keep pulling people up into the capital stack, we'll get there. And that's the trend I'd like to see. That's, that's awesome. Oh, it's time for, I just want to hear like from you, like just more into like the, the verticals you guys invest in. Um, so you got, you're funding cybersecurity, AI, and is it FinTech, right? Yeah. Um, what do you, you know, what are some trends that you guys see in, I guess, those spaces since uh, those markets change really quickly or like the entrepreneurship within the, the founders or people who want to build things like the new ideas kind of emerge first to a VC, like what is something that you're excited about in uh, those areas? I'm really excited about inclusion as a trend, you know, that fintech inclusion is a vertical now that we're trying to create a more equitable economy using using capitalistic tools. That's really cool. Um, and I'm loving investing in this vertical. We invested in Listo out of San Jose that's creating access for the Latinx community. And Finch is a checking account that superpowers what you have in your checking account, which is helpful for everyone. You know, that's, that's the thesis that I really get behind. Um, and the other thing that I see is an openness from the financial institutions to integrate with fintechs, which is also great. I think there's, you know, after post 2020, <laughs> we all know what we're good at and what we're bad at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and there's a there's an openness about that now, which I'm really enjoying. You know that a big bank isn't pretending like they can fix it with an incubator. They're actually trying to create boots on the ground experiences that they can integrate into their larger organization. And it's it's in that beautiful stage of messy awkwardness where some amazing things are happening, and we're all getting it wrong. And but it's going to happen, and it's it's really cool to see. Yeah, I like your point, like messy awkwardness. I mean, like to get something done in a space that hasn't been done before, you know, there does need to be messy awkwardness. So it's interesting. Yeah. The Wright brothers did not build a very good plane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was reading about that too. And like the book that Twilio founder made, um, he referenced, or somebody referenced the, the Wright brothers and, you know, airplanes having a lot of failure and danger. So. Is is actually more physical, physically risky than than you know what we're, we're dealing Hopefully with. Hopefully, more is. physically risky than venture capital. Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> well, well, I guess one last thing here is like, what uh, I don't know if we covered this exactly, but like, what what do you think women can do to to attract more funding? I know that um, that was kind of in the show notes, so wanted to ask that. Write the check. Write women the check. need to write the check. They just need to start writing checks, and you know. To, and that's easy to say because women make, you know, 75 cents on the dollar and there's all these statistics why it's hard. But if you can save up a hundred dollars and think about really where that money is going, or if you have a 401k through your work, ask your financial planner or your HR department, what percentage of the money that I'm saving for retirement is managed by people that look like me? That's a really, Wow. Uh, jaw-dropping point. And if they don't know, make a map and go find the answer, you know, because 
women need to be accountable for the money that we're spending. And if we all are, we're 51% of the population. We have you on numbers. (laughs) 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 For sure. And if we all wrote the check in whatever way we were able to do it, it doesn't have to be be a VC. You know, I like to be really transparent that Adrian and I are very startup friendly. We've had startups. We've taken a lot of personal career financial risk to get here. And that's a constant conversation with us of, okay, we're going to do this, you know, and, and we're, we, we were in agreement on it. That may or may not be your situation, but if you're a woman with a white collar job, you probably have a retirement account. And if you do, do you know where that's going? Or if you bought your groceries, you know, was it a female CEO of the company that you chose? Whatever it is, your Robinhood account, how much are your Robinhood? Or I shouldn't plug Robinhood, but whoever. Yeah, <laughs> whoever you would choose to invest with, what percentage of that is managed by a woman? Um, and if we start just supporting each other relentlessly, we ha- will have an incredible impact. Wow. Yeah. Those are incredible points. I just, you know, me thinking like, what can I do to uh, kind of advocate for this stuff? I know the podcast certainly like, you know, amplifies voices, but, you know, just uh, uh, I guess like as a citizen of the country, or, you know, in general, like, what is it? Um, and I definitely think that, you know, women are, are growing in, in power positions, you know, like the, the VP is from uh, kind of like the Bay Area, my hometown kind of, and, and the, it's, it's great to see. So definitely do think that there's positives to, to be clapped about and t- taken notice of. So that's, that's awesome. Um, for, again, I, I have my, my two questions that I love asking, right? Like first question is, um, you know, if you had to come back again to your, you know, 19 20 year old self knowing what you know now with investing startups etc what advice would you give yourself right <laughs> yeah um at that time major in finance <laughs> <laughs> like listen to your parents <laughs> um but i think i probably would have called myself a sellout at the time if i'd given myself that advice um I wish I had believed in myself sooner. I wish that I had believed in my own ability to learn different things and not fit into the mold that other people told me I were sooner, which I think is really parallel to what all of us older people would tell a younger person. And if we ever figure out a way for them to actually learn it, that would be amazing. (laughs) What what did you major in or like, you know? My undergrad is in arts management and Spanish, and my master's degree is in interior design, which is, it turned out to be really helpful, but it was, I took the route to get there. (laughs) It's very complicated project management, and those skills are amazing. And having to pitch an idea to get someone to create something physical is an amazing skill set to have. Because, you know, I had to go to Marriott and be like, no, you really should spend $20 million to turn this purple. We should. There's no other wow. path forward wow. here. That's, and you know, so that's I, helpful. I, I, love, I love this whole analogy. And, you know, sometimes, you know, um, the dots just connect, as Steve Jobs said, right? Like, you know, sometimes you think like, oh, wow, I'm taking your design that that actually led you to become a, a better VC, right? Which is which is awesome. Which leads me to the my my, my last question for, for my side is, you know, if you had to 
you know, summarize, I guess, your own personal startup mindset in one or two sentences, what would that be that you want to share to the audience? I haven't listened to what people said before to this, but go get it. Like, just go get it. Just go do the thing. You will learn so much faster by trying it and talking to people and skinning your knees than trying to get the right certificate or the right degree or the right whatever. You'll, you know, the people that I have met doing this have been an incredible gift to work with. And being able to text someone who's knowledgeable a question is 10 times better than taking a class on it, usually, unless it's like cap table modeling or something, and then just take the class. I was going to say, if you, if you <laughs> yeah. financial modeling, would that be applicable to? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's about it for the podcast today. We love learning about you know, your journey and uh, the funds journey and everything in between. So, so how do you know, our guests, if they want to pitch Mendoza Ventures or learn, learn more about the fund, how, how can they do that? So if you want to pitch us, there is a form on our website that you can submit a deck through, um, or you can email partners at mendoza-ventures.com with your deck, and that'll go, that's our intake email. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn. It's, I have a weird name, so I'm really easy to find. It's S-E-N-O-F-E-R, and my last name is Mendoza. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram under under those two. Wow. That, that, is there any other thing that you wanted to say too that you wanted to plug in to the end or the show? Or? Um, I just <laughs> want to thank you guys. This was so much. This was such a great way to spend my International Women's Day. Thank oh you so much. Oh my God. Much. That's an honor. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> that does it for another episode of Star Minds' podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Uh, if you guys ever want to get in contact with us, just hit us up at Start Mindsets Pod on Instagram. Another thing I want to mention here is we could really use some reviews on Apple. So if you got the time, leave us a review, uh, five out of five, or whatever you guys thought. Um, and you know, uh, we'd love to continue this podcast and keep uh, giving you guys amazing episodes. So thanks.